either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Hey, look, it's Halloween weekend. We better have some scary movies. And the good news is, we do. There you go. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from MadWolf.com. And let's start right out with a monster named Larry, manifesting itself through smartphones and mobile devices. It's the feature film version of a 2017 short film, and this is called Come Play. He just wants a friend. Stay away from my son. Did you turn it on? Finished the story. Why isn't it called Larry? Well, it was called Larry <laughs> because Larry's not a really scary monster it's not. name. No, it's not. Yeah, Larry was the 2017 short film that now it's the same writer director, Jacob Chase. This is his feature debut. He's done a few, few shorts, but uh, Larry got him on the on the map. Really got him noticed. So uh, he's expanding. And yeah, come play for the Halloween season. And it is a monster. It's a monster that, as the synopsis says, is manifested through. Devices, screens on devices. It centers around a, a young boy who uh, named Oliver, who's played by the uh, played by the way by uh, Ashy Robertson, who is the was the son, the child in Marriage Story. So yeah. you think he's going to rip your heart out like he did, <laughs> like he did in that movie? Not the same, but he's still he's really good because he's playing an autistic, nonverbal child in this one, who um, c- communicates with devices. And he stumbles upon this story, this app story for children called Misunderstood Monsters. And the monster that's misunderstood is Larry. And he just (laughs) wants to be your friend. But if you've seen the trailers, he's scary. He's a scary-looking dude. (laughs) So uh, Oliver really isn't interested, but Larry is pretty persistent. And as things go on, you find out that uh, he's telling a story, of course, as best that he can communicate it. That nobody believes, teachers, friends, and parents, and his estranged parents, who are kind of in the middle of breaking up, played by Jillian Jacobs, who's great. She is And good. John Gallagher Jr., who's always, uh, we call him Good Guy Jim. That's from, right. From uh, the newsroom. But then they're solid. So, and they finally, after some crazy things happen, have to realize that, yes, this monster is stalking us through our screens. And... It's a movie. It's not going to take you long if you've seen. We'll just go ahead and say it. I tried to avoid saying this in my written review of the uh, of the film, but the Babadook yeah. just screams all over this movie because if you've seen the Babadook and appreciated it, if you have seen it, I assume you appreciate it because it's great. Yeah, well, it is. It is. The Babadook is one of the best horror films to be made in the last twenty years. Like one of the two or three best. Yeah, it's really good. It's from twenty fourteen. I believe, and you just see that he had to be inspired by that because it's pretty much the same basic framework. Right. You've got the themes a, are different, yeah, but the, but the framework a, is the yeah, same. Yeah, a troubled child from a troubled home, and then you get a monster manifested from a story yep. that that child is involved in. And the thing about it here is the the metaphor is much more direct. 
obviously the metaphor about we're all slaves to our devices is right there in your face. Right. You know, there is no getting around that whatsoever. And it, I, I get it, and it's it's uh, well taken. It seems a little, it's not exactly new. No. I mean, that's we've seen that yeah. um, for sure. And the one thing about that, and also you get the feeling that as opposed to the Babadook, which, which seemed just perfectly lean and as far as a story, it didn't seem to have any filler whatsoever no. in, um, because it was also developed from a short, yeah. a great short called great Monster, Monster, which used to be on YouTube and it's not anymore. I mean, it's, mm. it's such a great short. Anyway, this one does feel like it had a little bit more trouble getting it to 90 some odd minutes or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. But I'll tell you, he, uh, Jacob Chase, does prove himself to be a pretty good tactician. The camera work is good. He has a good feel for visual creepiness. Mm-hmm. There, there are some good visual creeps more than just outright scares. The scares are the jump scare variety, but they are among the better jump scares you're going to see. There just really aren't that many of them. If, to me, there was a, some long stretches where there's not very much scary stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, the ideas are, are decent. It's just that they're not urgent. They're not new. They're not original. But uh, And he does find a good way. Once you get into this sort of high-concept horror with this monster, and you're thinking, okay, how's he going to get out of it? Well, he does a pretty, he, he wraps it up in a pretty nice way. A little bit surprising, uh, but it is satisfying. It's a bit of a satisfying ending that I don't think I was really expecting. Right. So that was good. That's on the plus side. But it just seems so much to be in service of the Babadook, which is, hey, if you're going to be inspired by a movie, that's a good be in, a movie to be inspired by. Yeah, I think the problem is that it's not that old. It's only about six years old. Right. And so it's so hard not to suffer by comparison. Yeah. You know, I mean, that movie was a near masterpiece. It was. And you hate to label things art house horror. I know a lot of people did call uh, Babadook, the Babadook yeah. art house horror. This is more multiplex. Sure. I mean, it's it doesn't overthink things. It doesn't it doesn't hide its metaphors or its themes at all. Not not that the Babadook did, but you had to think about it a little bit more. Yes. And, and this one you don't. If you just want some some jump scares, PG thirteen, right. so you know it's not going to be overly uh, bloody or anything like that. Uh, decently done. Not great, but if you're looking for something new that's decent for the Halloween season, and it's in theaters, and it is that's yes, it is in theaters right now, and it's a, looking at some of the listings, it is making a lot of theaters yeah. uh, right now across the country. So if you feel like venturing out, this might be a decent one for Halloween. Come play. Next up is the story that follows a young boy who runs away from home in search of his estranged mother. This is called the True Adventures of Wolf Boy. What's your name? Aristiana. <laughs> That's a stupid name. Just because you look like that doesn't give you permission to be a dick. There's nothing to be ashamed of. (laughs) We give the people what they want. Come see the dangerous dog boy! Go get a drink. I'm not old enough. Please, you're never not old enough for anything. This is a sticker! Oh, my God. Give me the money! Paul? This is a sticker! So, what do we do now? The world's gonna be mean to us no matter what we do. So we can't afford to be mean to ourselves. I'm a normal kid and I'll be strong. As you know, George, 
I love Jaden Martell. Oh, Jaden Martell. And you know what I don't really necessarily need is a movie that makes me sad for Jaden Martell (laughs) because I always just want to hug him anyway. I know. And this one does, although it ends up being a very touching, heartwarming story. It's it's a bit of a YA drama, which always makes me go, ugh. <laughs> because, and, and you're talking about a movie like this that has a theme of self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a very common theme, which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, you no. can revisit themes. Mm-hmm. The problem with so many of these YA dramas, so many of them use the same tired playbook. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it just hits you over the head with what with what it's saying. They tell you. Yeah. They tell you things. Literally, of show, in dialogue, yes, they exactly. explain to the crowd what yes. you're supposed to be getting. And very often, as you've heard yeah. us complain about, is in um, narration and the uh, essay at the end. None of that here. No. This is done in such a magical way by director Martin Kretschy. I hope I pronounced that right. It really unfolds like a picture book. The, the chapters that this movie is divided into are separated with title cards that are just beautiful. Yeah. These ornate uh, pictures of art and these drawings like you'd see in a real majestic picture book that are that like tell sort of an odyssey, mm-hmm. which is what this movie turns into because Jaden Martell, yeah, from It and so many other movies, he's great. He plays 13-year-old Paul whose mother ran away when he was very young because he was born with a very rare but real condition known as hypertrichosis where you have undue hair growth all over your face and body. He uh, has grown up usually wearing a ski mask because he's very obviously self-conscious about it. And his father, played by Chris Messina, is is gently trying to get him to put that ski mask away and accept what the world brings him with dignity. Uh, and, And Paul is having a hard time doing that. Well, he gets a strange birthday gift on his 13th birthday, and it is a map with a note attached about... Come find me for explanations. And so Paul then decides to run away, follow this map, find his mother, and uh, confront her about leaving and and get some explanations. And that's when it becomes a road trip, an odyssey, Mm -hmm. because once Paul Mm -hmm. runs away, he starts meeting all these different characters that expand his worldview and start to turn his feeling about himself around. You've got John Turturro, who's also a producer on the movie. He plays Mr. Silk, who runs a sideshow. And so we get a little bit of a Pinocchio, uh, put him on display Mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. Uh, But the main character and the one that is so important in what happens to Paul is played by Sophie Giannamore. Again, hope I pronounced that right as well. And she is a young transgender actress, and she plays a young boy who is living as a girl and is having to deal with her mother not accepting that. And instead of having too much hair, she has too little hair. Her mom insists on a boy haircut and calling her Kevin, while she insists her name is Aristiana mm-hmm. and that she's a mermaid. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful friendship that blossoms between the two of them. And the two actors do very well getting their chemistry right as well. But it's a great move by the writer, who's a transgender writer named Olivia Dufault, in writing the catalyst as a secondary character. Right. It's a beautiful way that we can experience it the way that Paul does. Because we, by the time he meets her, we already feel for him. Like you yeah. said, he, he makes you oh, his, his behind. And the makeup on his, his face is really yeah. well done. But behind that, he really expresses what he's feeling very, very well. He's a very uh, soulful Dr. actor. He is. He really is. And uh, and so you're sucked into that right away. So then, as his eyes are opened, yours are as well. And it's done so much through 
the relationship with this Aristiana character that it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to communicate this theme that so often these movies don't do. And it's, it's such a breath of fresh air to follow this friendship and this story as they go on. Because once he meets her, that's not the end. He does get to the end of his journey to meet his mother, played by Chloe Sevigny, who's got a, a small part at the end. And, but by the, to me, by the time you got there and got some answers, that was very sweet, but that was just gravy. I, I think that the relationship between the two kids, that's what really makes this movie go, and uh, the, between those two actors as well. And it's, it's very heartwarming and touching, and I found it to be just very, a, a real different take on the young adult drama. And it is rated PG-13, but I would, you know, I'd highly recommend it for parents and their teens. I think for me, one of the most trying things about sitting through so many YA films is how often the theme is this desperation to believe and prove that you are special. Right. Um, and what I really appreciate about this film is that it's not saying... Be special. It's saying accept who you are, yeah. which is a much, I think, a much uh, better theme for all of us. You know, don't don't be so desperate to have other people think of you as being special. Just accept who you are. Yeah, and and definitely with a with a story like this, you'll see cruelty cruelty on these kids for who oh, they sure, are yeah. and the way they come out of it. Because especially you know the Aristiana character, she's so defiantly positive which is in direct contrast to Paul's character, yeah. who is so forlorn about it. It's beautiful to see their friendship blossom. And that's, that's a very good point, and that's one of the things that makes this movie stand out. And it is streaming now. It's called The True Adventures of Wolf Boy. Well, we can't have Halloween weekend without witches. Let's go to a group of high school students from a coven of witches. It's a sequel to the 1996 film The Craft, and this is The Craft Legacy. This is all just a little crazy. Half the battle of having powers is believing you do. That's why covens have always been important. If we can do that, what else can we do? We need to put a spell on Timmy. We don't want to hurt him though, right? She's right. The number one rule of the craft. If a person is a danger to herself or others, they will be bound. Oh, we've gone too far. Was this just like some game to you? Oh, yeah. Be careful. A lot of weirdos out here. We are the weirdos, mister. Raise your hand if you love the 1996 original. <laughs> One of us has our hands raised. <laughs> but I, I have both it. of my hands I raised. I yes. but you have... A lot more love. I for love. It. I love it, and it's you know it came out in '96, so I'm not really the target audience. And I remember the first time I watched it, thinking, had I been a high school kid or even better still a middle school kid, this movie would have just changed everything. Well, there's a couple of big things that stand out about this new one. Number one, it's rated PG-13. Yes. While, while the original was rated R. Yep. And the original was written and directed by two guys. Yep. And this is written and directed by Zoe Lister Jones which I think, especially in the early going of this movie, brings a different uh, viewpoint that I really enjoyed. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that it makes a big difference in terms of the overall mood. And again, as you said, this is also PG-13. So it's it's a lighter, it's definitely a lighter film. And it's, and it's about, you know, it's about misfits finding strength in their own difference and in each other and appreciate each other and accepting each other, supporting each other. 
Whereas, of course, in the first film, which, again, I love, it is women tearing each other down. First, they tear down everybody who bothered them, and then they tear each other down because cattiness, blah. And early on, if you remember the spells they used, the point or the interest is getting affection from the cute boy. Yeah. And it's they still do a spell on a boy here, but it's for a different kind of spell. And one of the things that's great about it is this. When you are introduced to the high school bully, the popular kid who's really mean to girls, you know, you're trained to hate him, and then you you look forward to something bad happening to him. I really love, first of all, what the film does with this character, and second of all, how well that actor handled what is essentially a dual role. Yeah, Nicholas Galatzine. I always get these hard-to-pronounce words. I always just wait quietly while you attack him. Yeah, he plays Timmy, and you're right. And this story kicks off with the new girl in school who ends up being the fourth in this coven of witches is played by Callie Spaney, another tough last name. And we've seen her be, she was the uh, younger sister of um, Dakota Johnson in Bad Times at the El Royale. Right, right, right. She was a, a daughter of uh, RBG in, on the basis of sex. But here she gets a chance to do more of a lead role. And she's really cute and really spunky. And uh, she, her mother, played by... Michelle Monaghan. Right, Michelle Monaghan, is moving in with her boyfriend, David Duchovny, and that's how she and his three and teenage his three, sons and boy are they excited to have a new step sister yeah, they really are and so, it just it just adds i think to the overall anxiety that you feel for this girl cuz yeah. she's new in town she has three high school age boys. It's her first day of high school. Right away, you know. And it, she the, has the, a terrible first day. The worst terrible. ever. Terrible. The worst. So these three girls come to her aid, and they realize that she's got some power. So boom, they've got a coven now, and they can do the whole light as a feather, stiff as a board thing. And you know, the one thing I found about in talking to people about this movie, a lot of people are are thinking this is a reboot. It's not. Oh no, it's a straight up sequel. Right. It's a sequel 20ish years later and uh and I think it works way better because that's what it is. Um I do think and and the thing is, I think that Zoe Lister-Jones really enjoyed these kids. She liked these characters that she created. She liked the the gang that she made and she mm-hmm. spent too much time just hanging out with them because I did too. I very much enjoyed the entire atmosphere and then it's like at some point the yeah. movie goes, "Oh wait, we have to give these guys something to do." And yeah. that's when you're like this is it's not that I didn't like the storyline. I just felt like that shouldn't have kicked in halfway through the movie. Yeah, and also And that's what happens. And I think it could use it could have used more of maybe an R-rated bite. I get it. I want to be PG-13 right now, but it, it did. It got me through about about halfway, and then it just started to lose lose me a little bit. Because I feel like once the film actually develops a villain and, you know, a story of peril, it didn't. It just felt much less sure at its footing. Yeah. And honestly, that's kind of what we got into it for in the first place, right? It wasn't just... What it felt like to me was... She has a great TV series in her where you love these kids and you want to see what happens to them every day, but that is not what a movie does. Right, and it's also pretty clear by the end that they're they're hoping for future, future films and uh, the future to see about how these uh, the story of these these young witches continues. So we'll see about that. But entertaining enough, I guess, for yeah, the I mean, PG thirteen crowd. Yeah, it's fine. It's you know, I, it's certainly I don't think it's the kind of film that twenty years hence people are going to go. I loved that. That was really you know, it really marked a change for me in my high school mm-hmm. years or something. The way I think a lot of people look back at the craft. Yeah. But it, you know, it's a it's a very perfectly pleasant. Uh, Halloweenish movie to watch with your family. Yeah, and just like you said, just hang out with this gang, yeah. right? And that is uh, the Craft Legacy streaming now.
More spookiness next. A man crash lands in rural Appalachia and awakens in the attic of a traditional hoodoo practitioner. It's called Spell. I need an ambulance. Ain't no hospital within 50 miles of here. I'm gonna fix you. I'm gonna fix you good. I put a spell on you. They got my family. She controlling everyone in town. Put you up. Put you down. This is for your own good. Well, if we talked about the first movie reminding us of the Babadook, I think there's a setup in this that remind you of a certain Stephen King with the hobbling. Yes, yeah. So it's got a it's got a bit of misery to it, but it also has a, just a huge mishmash of every backwards horror movie you've ever seen. You know, I was kind of hopeful. I, I think maybe it was a trailer. I can't even remember why I was looking forward to this. Uh, but Omari Hardwick mm-hmm. plays Marquise, and he is an incredibly successful. Uh, attorney. That's right. He flies his own plane. <laughs> he and his family, his wife and his two teenage kids fly back to Appalachia when they find out that Marquise's father has died and they're going to go to the funeral. And you realize at that dinner conversation that the rest of the family has really never heard a single thing about Marquise's dad. And then you get the sense from some dream sequences that the dad wasn't such a good guy and that Marquise made his way out of Appalachia into the, you know, the the power and money that he has now through a lot of hard work. And he's not very proud of where he came from. And he probably shouldn't go back there. So <laughs> pretty quickly, he stops to get gas in his airplane at a uh, sort of, you know, we sell bait and weird stuff in jars, kind of a gas station in Appalachia. And then right then you're like, yeah, this has gotten much too familiar. This is exactly that same creepy, offbeat, convenience store scene that you see in one in five horror movies. Right. Um, and then it just kind of takes a turn from there because it becomes so obvious. It becomes so threadbare and tired that, you know, it, it seems like perhaps the only thing the film has going for it in, two, in terms of novelty is that they're not white people. You know, I mean, white yeah. people who are afraid of backwoods white people, that has been going on since probably Deliverance, right? But so this is the first time I've seen this exact kind of full-blown backwoods horror where the entire cast is African-American. And so I, I think that there is a sense that that could be mm-hmm. intriguing, but it, it loses that value really, really quickly. And one of the concerns I had, so there is a time, there's a moment in this film where the, the sheriff says to Marquise that Marquise's story about, you know, what's going on with him and his family with this backwoods captive and all of this, the sheriff tells Marquise he's being racist. And I remember at that time thinking to myself, that is an interesting sentence because I, I would never say that this film is racist because I'm white and white people don't get to decide what is racist and what isn't racist. But I, it bothers me a great deal that the writer is white. <laughs> the director is not, and, but the director doesn't get a writing credit. And it's not so much the plot, it's the dialogue that mm-hmm. I just keep thinking, I hate that a white guy wrote this dialogue because I'm very uncomfortable uh-huh. by a lot of it. And I don't know if it's because it's just weakly written or because it feels very stereotypical to me. I'm not sure. But the point that I know I can make for sure is it's a pretty weak and obvious movie. 
Yeah, and it's not just the dialogue, but toward the end of the script, threads are left dangling and moments of contrivance get in before we're done. And we should say the, I guess, the the Kathy Bates in this scenario. Loretta Devine. Loretta Devine, who has been around forever. She was in the original Broadway cast of Dreamgirls. Oh, I didn't you know even know fa- that. Oh, yeah. You know her face. She's been around and been been, been great for years. So She's she, good, and she, she gets deserves to be better the, than the this. voodoo priestess. Yeah, and she, you know, and she she does. She chews some scenery. She seems to be having a good time. And there's this, there's a scene with a foot, because of course there's a scene with a foot. This movie rips off misery. There's a scene with a foot. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, it's like three scenes with a foot, and it's almost worth it. I mean, you're just like, (laughs) you know, so the scene with the foot is great. The biggest, biggest problem after all of that is, like, during the climax, during the third act, there are so many times where you're like, how is he doing all these things? Where are all the other people who one second ago were closing in on him and chasing him? How? Yeah, yeah, it's just lazy. It's right. just lazy and yeah. very disappointing. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty forgettable, but it's not one of those where you'll, if you want to waste some time on it this weekend, you're not going to say, boy, I wish I saw that in the big screen. No, no you're not. Not really. And that is Spell. Next is the sequel to one of our all-time favorites. This is a zombie virus that in the last four years has spread to all of South Korea. Four Koreans in Hong Kong sail through the blockade to Incheon for 20 million bucks on a truck. This is Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. We love us some Train to Busan. We do. That's a great, one of the best zombie movies. It's just fantastic. I, I would say that for me, it's the best zombie film since 28 Days Later, which, mm-hmm. yes, I know if you're, it's not, 28 Days Later is not technically a zombie. They're not dead already. Still, same basic idea. So this is basically, this is the third film in the franchise because we also have an animated by the same director called Soul Station. Yes. Yeah, so check that out as well. Oh, absolutely. And what's in the, the thing is we are very excited about Peninsula and it's not that it's a bad movie, but but Train to Busan is so very fresh. Mm-hmm. It feels new, which is hard to do with a zombie. And then of course, Soul Station being animated, yeah. it also has this incredible freshness about it. Boy, Peninsula does not. Well, and the thing about Train to Busan is it's very it's surprisingly character driven. It really is. For a zombie movie. Exactly. You're really caught up in these characters. Oh, yeah. This one doesn't have that. No. And this one has another thing which Train to Busan doesn't have. You're, you immediately start seeing the patchwork of so many other movies. It's very borrowed. S- very borrowed. Starting with the basic premise reminded me right away, there's a 1970s movie called Sorcerer, which is an update of a 1950s 50s movie, movie called The Wages of Fear, yeah. about going in with the trucks yeah. to this real dangerous area and coming out, whoever makes it out alive gets to keep the money. But that's just the start of a lot yeah, of borrowed ideas. That's, yeah, that's the bones of it. And then you layer on top of that, there is a lot of 28 Days Later. There is a lot of Romero's Land of the Dead, a ton. Like, there's a ton lifted directly from Land of the Dead. There's a ton lifted directly from 28 Days Later. There's a lot of Mad Max all over the place. A lot of Mad Max, the especially whole... the, uh, the Fury Road. Yes, yeah. And, and then the other thing that really surprised me about this movie is you'd think that the filmmaker probably had a, some cash to work with because yeah. of the incredible popularity of Train to Busan, which looked great. Train to Busan looked spectacular. And this one doesn't. And I don't just mean that it's so clearly uh, set on sound stages. I mean the actual... The zombies. The yeah. zombie, yeah. They, they just look like sort of weak software. I yeah. mean, it's it's not... 
and I know that if we sound very critical, it was an enjoyable movie. It's fine. It is just that it's the just wa- that- yeah the bar was so high on this yeah. one because of the last two. Yeah. That's it. If you're looking for a new zombie movie, you can fire this one up this weekend. Uh, but if you haven't seen Train to Busan or Soul Station, right. see both of those yes. for sure. Because you're right, this one, it, it has a lot to live up to. And it just, just doesn't feel like it ever does. And that is streaming starting uh, now. It is Train to Busan Peninsula. And we'll move from Korean horror to Indonesian horror. Two years after escaping from demonic terror... Young woman is still haunted by unnatural visions. The dangers that await her and her friends are increasingly threatening. The figure of darkness rises to take their lives. This is May the Devil Take You, Chapter 2. So this one you can find on Shudder. And on Shudder, it's, it's being called May the Devil Take You Too. I like that better. T-O-O. <laughs> I like that and better. I think the reason is because Chapter 2 suggests that it is a sequel, but it, it is. It is a sequel to a movie probably very, very few of us have seen called May the Devil Take You. So I think they're just saying May the Devil Take You Too so that you're not quite so sure going into it that you didn't see the first one, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you didn't. How do I know that? We didn't. And we see everything. (laughs) (laughs) This is a movie where you just don't want to look very closely at the details. It clearly doesn't have a great big budget behind it. And I think that the filmmaker does a lot with what he has to demonic possession, sort of haunted house, afterlife, kind of a horror film. And he's got some interesting ideas there that aren't going to feel completely borrowed for the most part. But I think he wears his... American film influences, you know, on his sleeve. There's a lot you're going to see, a couple of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie references here, a lot of Evil Dead. But I don't think that it's so much that he borrows from those because I think his own take on these things is interesting and different. And it's it's essentially a haunted house movie. You're just trapped inside this house with a demon. The performances and the writing are not very good. The staging is fun. The practical effects are fun. The makeup is fun. You know, there's... And and once it gets going, it's pretty relentless with the scares, you know. I mean, it's not rocket science, this movie. It really isn't. But it's <laughs> it's entertaining. Mainly, the, the biggest issues are you have this set of about six or seven people who just stand around while stuff happens and they scream each other's names. That's what they all do <laughs> so instead then, of... So DJ Khaled is in this movie. <laughs> They just all stand around going, you know, you know, Nala, Alfie. That's all. They just stand around and scream each other's names. They don't do anything. This is writer-director Timo Chajanto, and I'm sure I butchered that as well. But, uh, yeah, it's on Shudder. So, again, we've been saying that Shudder has been has been uh, on a nice roll here. If you've got Shudder, hey, it's Halloween weekend. That's right. I'm going to say this is not one of the better Shudder films. The one that we talked about last time, Mortuary Collection, Scare Me. Those for the last couple oh, of yeah, weeks, really enjoyed yeah. those. And if you want foreign language, they're the Shudder. La Llorona was great. Right. Um, 32 Malanaja Street, that was yeah, pretty fun, there's too. there's good stuff there. This is a notch below. A notch. Uh, but it is... You know, kind of gory fun. <laughs> and that's May the Devil Take You 2 or Chapter 2. Take your pick on Shutter. And that takes us to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Back in the lobby to check in with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer, for the latest studio news. I've, I guess I've been really out of the loop this week. I haven't really heard much. What's going on? It's been pretty quiet. 
uh, quieter than usual. As far as dates go, Universal is releasing both Freaky and The Crudes 2 in theaters next month, and drive-ins as well, I guess. But they have that new 17-day release window where they can put something out on VOD after that and not get in trouble for it. Well, they finally officially announced VOD, PVOD dates for both of them. Freaky is going to hit on December 4th, so that's not too long of a wait. Right. And then The Crudes 2 is hitting right before Christmas on December 23rd. I'm looking forward to Freaky. I am too. Yeah, I've seen I like the that trailer. trailer. I've seen the trailer now a few times, and uh, yeah, I, I, I like it. Um, it looks, it, it's, it looks uh, like a lot of fun. It really does. The other big thing is all the uh, news sites have been going nuts for the past week because a rumor leaked that MGM was shopping around the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, for a potential streaming sale. Now, supposedly the price tag that was attached to this was $600 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. I'm pretty sure that's the reaction that all of the streamers had when they heard it. <laughs> On the one hand, it does make sense because the Bond movies make a ridiculous amount of money. But on the other hand, obviously no one is going to want to buy a movie for that much just to throw it on their streaming platform for subscribers. And as has been seen earlier in the year with Mulan, Charging subscribers a premium on top of what they're already paying monthly doesn't really excite them that much. Right. You you posted something not too long ago that I thought was interesting uh, about the James Bond movies, which is that that film has already it's in the black already just because of product placement. So they don't honestly they don't even need to sell a ticket and they've already made their money back. Yep. I wouldn't put it past the MGM to just kind of leak and float this out there just to see if people would even be remotely interested in a number that huge. But at the end of the day, there's multiple reasons why it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, on the one hand, you, you toss out a James Bond movie or any movie of this size and a franchise this big onto streaming, you unfortunately kind of devalue future installments. Sure. And then, like you said, with most huge blockbusters, a studio has to take out a bank loan. They make the movie with the bank loan. They repay the bank loan when the grosses come in. But with Bond, there's so many product placement and tie-in deals that the bank loan has already been paid. It's been paid since spring or early summer, apparently. Amazing. <laughs> Maybe it's just like when uh, back when, when Brando threw out the fee to be in that first Superman movie, never thinking they'd pay it, and they paid it, so he was in it. <laughs> How about $600 million? <laughs> Even if MGM really did float that number out there, I really can't see a chance of this film ever going to VOD, especially since it's already paid off. If they have to sit on it till 2022, it instantly becomes a 60th anniversary movie. Oh. I mean, <laughs> not really going to hurt them either way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you're a big Bond fan and Hope is not, so just getting her engaged in this conversation <laughs> is a win. <laughs> All right, Daniel Baldwin, find him at the Schlocketeer. We appreciate it. All right, thanks again. Okay, whoo, looks like we are stacked next week with Attack of the Demons. Acute Misfortune. Higher Love. The Dark and the Wicked. Mortal. Triggered. Kindred. Let Him Go. Coco D, Coco Da. Is, it, is that the song by the Beatles? <laughs> I don't think so. Proxima. And True to the Game 2. Yep. Did we see True to the Game 1? No. All right.
All that and probably more next week. In the meantime, let us know your favorite scary stuff from this Halloween season. Uh, you can always find us and keep the conversation going on Twitter. That is at Mad Wolf. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other fun stuff, including our horror movie only podcast called Fright Club. That's all at madwolf.com. So we appreciate you stopping by as always. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review? And have a happy Halloween. Happy watching. Get spooky. Until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>